Welcome to Saturday Evening Torah Class, an in-depth, interdisciplinary study of the Hebrew Scriptures. Tonight's lesson is week number 16, Leviticus chapter 11, the second continuation. You know, sometimes in order to make sense out of um, all that we've been studying in Torah, it's necessary to take the time to step back and from a broader view examine some of the things about the very nature of Holy Scripture that are not so terribly obvious. Now, I discussed last week this concept of rational, logical thought styles versus analogic thought styles because the rational, logical is this current Western cultural style of thinking that we all use. But the culture and writers of the Bible thought and communicated in what is called the analogic style. And in a nutshell, rational logical asks the question, why? And it's the basis for our scientific method of discovery. It believes that history is a straight line and that history has little or no inherent bearing on the present or future except in a linear evolutionary fashion of the primitive that leads to the more advanced. Now, when I say that, don't get the wrong idea. There are many fields of study, like archaeology, that study the past. The question for them, though, is what happened and how it got to be that way. Weather researchers gather data to look at past weather events in order to create models to help predict future weather events, but they don't look at past weather as the cause for future weather. Analogic thinking doesn't ask why. It asks which. Analogic thinking views history not as a straight line, but rather as a series of repeating cycles. Analogic thought relies on accepted and established patterns and models. It searches for common truths that are shared between similar but not exact things. Relationships and connections between things are the key. The question of which pertains to which model, which pattern, the current circumstances are operating within. Why that model or pattern is as it is, is completely secondary to the process. And while at times you know it's kind of nice to know why, it's irrelevant in the decision-making process. Once again, this is the ancient Hebrew style of thinking. Actually, it was the common style of thinking throughout the known world of that era. And it's that style of thought that's expressed in the Bible. Now, rational, logical thinking is not wrong and it's not evil. But if we're going to understand our Bibles, then we have to grasp that to approach the study of the Holy Scripture asking why, or to try to structure and test by means of the scientific method ancient theological principles and laws that were written down in analogical thinking, it's just going to lead to confusion and downright error, and indeed it has. So as we look at the Torah and currently Leviticus, what we need to be looking for is patterns and models. Let me say that again. 
whatever answers are available to us will only come through our recognizing patterns established by Yehovah. It's rational, logical thinking that seeks the infamous, just give me the bottom line. Analogical looks for that familiar pattern. We have to be very careful in particular of seeking why for individual laws and commands why they are as they are. And why, for instance, the kosher eating requirements exist. And why some things Jehovah created he calls clean and other things he calls unclean. That answer is not going to be found by looking for scientific, rational, logical reasons. The answers will be found in the principles contained within the patterns that God created beginning with Genesis 1. The answers are not found in the reasoning of our minds, nor validated in proofs and results, cause and effect. The answers are found by trusting that Yehovah created everything, that everything operates in a way that's unchanging, and that he created it all to work in harmony. The reality is that our minds were simply not built to understand God's mind. That statement right there is in complete disharmony with rational, logical thinking. And so it has led to the worst sort of wrong-minded allegory being foisted on the saints by determined and learned Bible translators and scholars. Men, frankly, who wanted most of all to validate their mostly anti-Jewish agendas and who felt they must have the why about things for which no why is offered in the Holy Scripture. So let's invent something. Why do they need to know why? Because why is the great basis of Greek thinking? The search for why is at the heart of rational, logical thought. Yet you won't find a theme anywhere in the Bible for an ongoing search for why. Except in the rarest of occasions, why was simply not a question that the people asked when they received God's laws and his commands. Let me tell you one other thing about why. Asking why is not compatible with having faith. If we could always know why, where's the faith? Faith is trusting and acting when the why is simply not available. Where was Job's faith if God informed him why he was going through all the challenges that took everything from him. Yet, there was Job, largely content to simply accept his circumstances as God's will, at the same time that this whole series of friends came by to offer their view of why these things must be happening to Job. And of course, every one of them simply caused him more pain and not one of them was anywhere near correct. Let's abandon that search for why right now. 
right? And instead look at some of the most basic patterns and models that the Torah and Leviticus establish for us. And since we are currently in Leviticus, let's begin by looking at its central topic, which is sacrifice. Now, sacrifice entails the principles of God's creation and his ordained pattern of the whole universe. Everything about the system of sacrifice follows a model that we see established as early as the Garden of Eden, which then gets expanded and more clear at Mount Sinai, and then expanded and clearer yet again with the construction of the Wilderness Tabernacle. The Wilderness Tabernacle provides for a physical model of holiness that we humans can see and we can even interact with it. The tabernacle itself is split into three zones of holiness. The Holy of Holies is the innermost part where God's presence resides. Only Jehovah and his appointed servant, the high priest, can even enter that place. A barrier, a curtain, divides that holiest place from another holy zone called the holy place, but it's a zone of lesser holiness. The common priests could go in here. This was as close to the presence of God that they could get. Finally, outside yet another barrier called, the Bible calls the door, by the way, is a third zone. This yellow zone you see on here. The courtyard that surrounds the tabernacle. And into this courtyard, the ordinary people of God, Israel, are welcome to enter to bring their sacrifices to Jehovah. Only Israelites are permitted in this era. Area Absolutely no Gentiles. Because by definition, a Gentile has not been declared holy by the Lord. Now, while this third zone of holiness, this courtyard, is the zone of least holiness, it is holy nonetheless. Now, this man-made structure, the tabernacle, was constructed according to a blueprint given to Moses by God himself. And of course, it simply modeled that which had which was already in existence, Mount Sinai. The hand of God, not human hands, built Mount Sinai. And it too consisted of three zones of holiness. Up on the summit was the zone where God's presence rested. And only Moses could go up there. That was the holiest place, not only on Mount Sinai, but on all the earth. The next holiest zone was the slope of the mountain. And only Aaron and his sons, the future high priest and the common priests, and on occasion the 70 elders that formed the government of Israel, were allowed to approach this holy zone. At the bottom of the mountain, we're told, was a rock barrier 
erected, a rock wall which separated the holiest and the holy zones from the area of least holiness at the bottom of Mount Sinai where God's people, the ordinary Israelites, could congregate and worship. Outside of these three zones, when, when Mount Sinai was in operation, which gave way, of course, when the tabernacle was put into operation, uh, uh, operation, outside of those three zones, the holiness of space ends. We spoke in previous lessons about sacred time and sacred space. One dimension of time and three dimensions of space, length, width, and height, come together to form the four dimensions that form our universe. Okay. There is some space that Jehovah has set apart and reserved as holy. All other space is just common. Okay. The first designated holy space on earth was the Garden of Eden. Okay. Later that holy space would become Mount Sinai. And after that, holy space on earth would be represented by that portable tabernacle that would could go wherever God's people went. And then finally, the holy space became the temple that was built at the God-designated location of Mount Moriah in Jerusalem. So the pattern, the pattern for sacred space is most holy, a place reserved for Jehovah's presence and the high priest, holy, a place reserved for Jehovah's common priests, and least holy, a place reserved for Jehovah's set-apart ordinary people. That's why the term that we'll find over and over again in the Bible, outside the camp, is so important to grasp. Outside the camp simply means outside the sacred space, outside of the zones of holiness. Okay. Notice a characteristic of this pattern. Most holy is either the uppermost or it's the innermost. Holy is intermediary, a middle zone, a buffer zone, if you would, on the slope of the mountain or in this front room of the tent or the tabernacle. Least holy is the outermost courtyard, which eventually extended on into the camp. Beyond the area where the Israelites are is outside the camp. It's common. Therefore, it's not sanctified. It's not holy. Now, that's not terribly hard to visualize. But this pattern, same exact pattern, carries on a little bit further because it also applies rather predictably, I think, to the actual structure of the priesthood. The high priest is the most holy. Therefore, he can be in God's presence once a year. The common priests are holy and act as intermediaries and a buffer between God's people and God, though they may not enter into God's direct presence. The Levites, who are not priests, but are God's lesser servants, serve in the outermost zone, the tabernacle courtyard. They may not enter either the holy zone nor the most holy zone. 
The Levites serve God's people and they serve God's priests. But again, that's only out in the third zone, out in the courtyard, the space of least holiness. So the priesthood also reflects the three levels of holiness pattern. A person outside of the priesthood cannot perform any of the tasks reserved only for the priests and the Levites. Ah, but the same holiness pattern even goes further. It's even projected upon the body of the sacrificial animal. This is where all those hours we've spent together studying just how the animal was sacrificed and exactly which parts of that animal were used and in what order comes into play. The body of the sacrificial animal is effectively divided into three holiness zones. Even the way the pieces of the body of the sacrificial animal are laid and stacked onto the altar is done in an order reflecting the three holiness zones. Back in the first chapter of Leviticus, we are told that the Olah, the burnt offering, must put the animal parts onto the altar fire in a specific order. First the head, then the fat on top of it, and then the entrails on top of that. Thus we have this pile of sacrificial animal parts placed on the altar, and at the summit, entrails, middle, fat, bottom, head, and briefly we see at the top of the pile these innermost parts of the animal. Okay? Anatomically, what surrounds the entrails that the Bible calls out these specific ones that are to be put on the fire is a thick layer of fat that's called hilev. Okay? It's, this is the kind of fat that God prohibits the people from eating because it's holy to Yahweh, to Yehovah. Recall that there is a second type of fat that exists within the flesh or meat of the animal, and we're all familiar with it, all right, because we can see it underneath those nice cellophane wrappers at the meat counter. Okay. That type of fat can be eaten. Okay. The hilev surrounds and encases the specific entrails that are used for sacrifice. In fact, the layer of fat, of this hilev fat, is so complete, you can't even see those inner entrails until you remove that fat. Okay. The head is the part of the sacrificial animal that's furthest away from the entrails, the innermost parts. So we have the innermost parts as most holy, the hilev fat, which is a barrier and a middle zone, a buffer zone, which separates the entrails from the head. All right. Outside the barrier of the halev fat is the least holy, which is the head. Now, going back to the earlier part of this lesson, we see that the sacrificial animal, as an illustration of holiness, is described in a pattern that, then, that is then repeated 
for the tabernacle. The holy mountain, the priesthood, that same pattern as the sacrificial animal, all follows the same mold, even going back to the Garden of Eden. Therefore, why are the laws of the precise use of the parts of the sacrificial animal organized on the altar the way they are? Because they conform to the pattern of the rules of the structure of the priesthood. Why are the laws concerning the ordering of the priesthood designated as they are? Because they conform to the pattern of the rules of the structure of the wilderness tabernacle. Why are the laws concerning the structural structure of the tabernacle ordered as they are? Because they conform to the rules of the holy zones on Mount Sinai. So on and so on. Every time the answer to why is which pattern applies. This is analogic thinking. This is the thinking style of the Hebrews. This is the thinking that's reflected in the Holy Scriptures. The answer to why is because it conforms to one of God's holy patterns. With this knowledge, let's now dive into trying to understand the Torah's rules concerning food. Now, what I'm about to show you is that the dietary laws were put there primarily to just continue the holiness pattern that we've just been discussing. If we look at the Old Testament writings of the great Hebrew sages, the subject of kashrut, kosher eating, dominates their thoughts. Inevitably, if there is any Gentile scholar who dares venture into the Torah once they get to Leviticus, particularly chapter 11, and the laws of diet, they usually wind up pretty frustrated because they approach it searching for why. In the end, these great scholars generally come to one of two major doctrinal conclusions concerning those dietary laws of Leviticus. First, that the laws and rituals of Kashrut are irrational. They're completely arbitrary. They reflect nothing but superstitions from that era. And therefore, interpreting them and finding their meaning is impossible. The second doctrinal conclusion is generally that these laws and regulations are nothing more than allegorical representations of hygiene or food value and safety, or maybe even morals, ethics, vices, virtues, something like that. Let me say that again. The general scholarly belief, reflected in almost all commentaries you'll read on the subject, is that the kosher eating laws are either pure fantasy and gobbledygook or of no value whatsoever to modern man or they're to be treated as no more than symbolism. Now, one of the most common takes on kosher eating today, particularly since the birth of the Hebrew roots movement, I suppose, adopts the approach that Maimonides, who was a great Jewish sage from the 12th century, Espouses, And it is that he says that kosher eating is a formula for a healthy diet. That clean foods are the nutritious foods and unclean foods are the harmful foods to the human body. 
at least over the longer term. That Maimonides was a physician undoubtedly colored his viewpoint. It is true that a pig does not have four stomachs in its digestive tract as do cattle, sheep, and goats. And it's also true that shellfish and lobsters and shrimp are bottom feeders and they tend to eat floating or partially buried organic material including waste and decomposing flesh. Yet this view on the issue of why certain foods are permitted and others are not is really culturally oriented and is based on progressive thought. That is, it comes from a rational, logical thinking style. It most certainly does not represent any kind of pattern, nor does it explain and incorporate holiness into it. Philo, who was another great great, um, Hebrew commentator, who lived during the time of Jesus, actually, believed that the kosher eating rules were to be taken strictly as allegorically and as symbolism. In fact, he went so far as to say that fish with their fins and scales, which are clean animals, symbolize endurance and self-control. While the forbidden sea creatures are swept away by the current, they're unable to resist the force of the stream. Reptiles who slither along on their bellies signify people who give in to their every greedy desire and passion. That's his take on it. Christian teaching has pretty much followed Philo's lead by adopting allegory as their prime weapon in explaining what seems to be the otherwise inexplainable. For example, I found this footnote this commentary in the margins of the Westminster Bible. Hoof divided and cheweth the cud. The dividing of hoof and chewing on the cud signify discretion between good and evil. And I think it's fair to say that whatever form of allegorizing that one might take in trying to explain certain parts, parts of Holy Scripture, and especially as it concerns kosher eating, that form inevitably takes on the rational, logical viewpoint that in the end, everything must be about good and evil. Let's face it, whether we say it out loud or not, the the thoughts that first comes into our minds when we speak or think of clean versus unclean foods is good versus bad, right versus wrong. Sin versus righteousness, healthy versus unhealthy, or some such parallel idea. Another rather typical scholarly approach, still employing that allegorical theme, is that the laws of Kashrut, though generally arbitrary, were put there as a kind of protection for Israel. That is, these strange food laws helped to isolate Israel from pagan influence by specifically outlawing foods that were very much enjoyed in the Middle Eastern cultures that surrounded Israel. Every one of these allegorical views comes from rational, logical thinking and every one of these views ultimately sets off on a path that leads to nowhere. 
Okay. These are wonderful sounding. Some of them are very pious sounding explanations for the mysterious food laws of Leviticus 11. But in reality, every one of these academic and even theological approaches is so flawed as to be unworthy of attributing them to the mind of God. Okay. People in cultures which eat some of those sea creatures classified as unclean in Leviticus are often found to have extended lifespans and better than usual health over their lifetimes. The idea that unclean foods were inherently of themselves evil also doesn't wash because there was no stringent penalty laid upon the person who dared to eat them. Being made unclean from eating an unclean food was a condition that usually only lasted until sundown. And then it required little more than a ritual washing for the defilement to be purified away. Okay. That is far from what we see in the laws concerning specified sinful behaviors, which we studied a lot of them in Leviticus, that prescribed a whole variety of penalties for behavioral sins of all kinds, up to and including the death penalty. Further, to allow ourselves to think that Yehovah, who is always depicted as a God who never changes and who ordains order, not chaos, would just arbitrarily pick some foods and name some clean and others unclean, kind of like flipping a celestial coin, simply doesn't square with the rest of Scripture and it certainly doesn't square with His holy nature. Moreover, these allegorical solutions offered to explain Leviticus 11 are, as far as I'm concerned, little more than an attempt to make the allegorizer, if that's a word, appear very scholarly and knowledgeable and greatly pious. Okay? Because the very nature of allegory relies on the seemingly unlimited ability of men's minds to create fanciful relationships that don't exist in reality. So, then, what are we to make of those strange laws of ritual purity as it concerns the diet of the Hebrews. Well, at least the beginning of an answer comes in verse 44 of Leviticus 11, and I'll quote it to you. It says, For I am Jehovah your God, therefore consecrate yourselves and be holy, for I am holy. Do not defile yourselves. And then it goes on to say in verse 47, its purpose is to distinguish between the clean and the unclean, between the creatures that may be eaten and those that may not. Holiness is the primary purpose for Jehovah's establishment of the laws of Kashrut. Holiness. If we look carefully, we see that there is nothing in any of the verses of Leviticus 11 that says the dietary laws are symbolic. Neither do we read that one will become ill from eating something designated as unclean. If that was the case, why weren't so many toxic plants blacklisted? Okay. Nor do we read that life will be shortened. Or the designated clean food is inherently healthier for you than foods that are designated as unclean. And this is important. 
There is nothing that says that of itself. Of itself, there is something about a particular unclean animal that's inherently evil. So we must take an entirely different approach if we want to comprehend these kosher eating requirements and we can begin by adopting that mind of the Hebrew biblical writer. Which means that our only hope is to search for which God-ordained pattern applies to foods. A pattern, or patterns perhaps, that connects the Lord's clean and unclean designations. Now, we've already seen one established pattern that Jehovah created for mankind. And this pattern was created by employing one of the most basic governing dynamics that God uses for dealing with his entire creation. That's division, election, and separation. Let me digress for just a moment because perhaps the greatest human cry within the Christian community is this constant call for unity. Every pastor calls for unity within his congregation and at times uses it as an excuse for asking someone to leave because it's felt they're causing disunity. So when I stand here and tell you that the God of creation actually moves forward Using division and separation, that's probably a little uncomfortable for some of you. Okay. The term unity is only found in seven instances in the entire Bible. Five of them in the New Testament. In Hebrew, the word being translated in unity is echad. E-C-H-A-D. Echad. And it means oneness. It is in reference to God's character and to his essence and to man's ideal relationship with God. As such, the concept of echad, unity, really needs to be applied more in a spiritual context than in a physical one. In the New Testament, the Greek word used to try to get across a concept of unity is henotes. H-E-N-O-T-S. Henotes. And indeed, it does need unity. But it means unity more in the sense of unanimous agreement rather than oneness. The Hebrew concept of unity, echad, brings it with it this idea of joining something together organically. Literally growing together, thus creating this inseparable union that completes and it creates a wholeness once it's together. Which is perhaps the chief attribute of holiness. There doesn't appear to be a word in Greek that properly translates the uniquely Hebrew concept of echad. Henotes is close, but no cigar. That said, the Hebrew principle of echad, oneness, is undoubtedly what it is trying for. Now, in context, every instance in the New Testament 
whereby unity is called for is in regards to man's relationship to Christ. So, the unity flows from man to Jesus, not man to man. And whatever unity there is among us must flow through Christ. It has to. Yeshua is like the hub of a spoked wheel. He is the common point. If men are the spokes, we must note that the spokes of a hubbed wheel never touch one another. Any unity among those spokes occurs at the hub. So the biblical concept of unity, echad, is not about men coming to a unanimous agreement or on various issues, which is, frankly, the Greek rational logical thought approach. Rather, it's about each of our coming into union with the mind and person of Christ, our oneness with Christ, Ichad. This is a classic case of the Greek mindset misunderstanding the Hebrew mindset. It has caused many a church split and so much disharmony and hurt within the body. Folks, hear me. Disagreement among church or synagogue members or here in Torah class is not biblical disunity. There is plenty of room in God's house for differing views, especially on some of the more challenging and frankly often vague principles that we can find sometimes in Scripture. Now back on track. From a perspective of holiness as concerns the eating of animals, we have clean animals, which are animals that can be eaten by God's people, and therefore they can be inside the camp of Israel. We have unclean animals, which are animals that cannot be eaten by Israel, and and, and they're animals that must remain outside the camp as far as food is concerned. And sacrificial animals are those that may be, rep- uh, may be presented to God by the priests as sacrifices of atonement. Therefore, they are not only considered as qualified to be in the camp of Israel, they're even qualified to be sanctified if they meet all the requirements for use as a sacrifice, and then they're allowed inside those holy zones of the tabernacle. Now, if we look a little bit deeper we also see this kind of sub-pattern that follows Jehovah's instruction that you, Israel, are to be holy because I'm holy. And, and we see that on yet another level. And that pattern is that the animals that can be sacrificed on the altar for atonement come from the exact same group of animals that the Bible calls behemah, domesticated land animals, from which Israel can eat. So we can say that Yehovah 
partake spiritually of the same animals as do the Israelites physically. Now, the relationship of holiness between mankind and the sacrificial animals even extends further. Let me read you the commandment right out of what we typically label as the Ten Commandments about Sabbath. In Exodus 20, 10, it says this, But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son nor your daughter, your manservant, maidservant, nor your animals, nor, your, nor the aliens that are with you. It is interesting enough that if we just notice the Sabbath includes animals as well as men. But hidden within the original Hebrew words and mindset of this passage, passage of Scripture is a meaning that is completely obscured by Greek and English translations. Because the common translation of the word animals in this verse is well off the mark. Some of your Bibles will say instead cattle in place of the word animals. Well, that's a little bit closer, but it's still off the mark. The Hebrew word is behemah, B-E-H-E-M-A-H, behemah. It means domesticated land animals, cows, sheep, goats, animals suited for eating and for sacrifice, a very select group of animals. Does it surprise you that Yehovah would form a covenant relationship with animals? Actually, he did that even in Noah's day. Listen to Genesis 9, 8 through 11. Then God said to Noah and his sons with him, I now establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you and with every living creature that was with you. The birds, the livestock, all the wild animals... All those who came out of the ark with you, every living creature on the earth, I establish, I establish my covenant with you. Never again will all life be cut off by the waters of a flood. Never again will there be a flood to destroy the earth. God greatly values his living creatures. And so he made a covenant with all living creatures. In the case of Noah, he would never destroy them again with a flood. And right there, in the midst of the Ten Commandments, he makes a covenant with the animals that they are also to receive a Sabbath rest. But unlike the Noahide covenant, I want to repeat the significant point that it is only the Behemoth, the domesticated land animal, the ones that the Hebrews can eat, the same ones that can be offered for sacrifice on the altar that this is being applied to. Not all creatures, all animals on the face of the earth. Here we get an interesting clue about the choice of clean and unclean land animals. Animals that are or can be, theoretically, domesticated, are clean. 
with the criteria that they must chew the cud and have a cloven hoof. But inherently, wild animals, animals that are incapable of being domesticated, are outside of this. Now, before anyone gets the wrong idea of what I'm about to say, I guess it's necessary in this soundbite world we live in for me to state that while there is a parallel pattern between man and animals in a covenant relationship to Jehovah, man is above the animals. Man has the ability to be the temple of God's Holy Spirit. All other living creatures do not. Man, therefore, was placed in dominion over all other living creatures. But you know, sometimes it's much too easy for us to dismiss the great love Jehovah has for everything he created, especially those things he calls living creatures, animals included, because into them he, pray, he placed the breath of life, separating them from all other parts of his creation. So here is another pattern that emerges. Jehovah is in dominion over man, just as man is in dominion over all the other living creatures. Jehovah sets apart certain men for holiness, just as he also sets apart certain animals for holiness, those who will become sacrificial animals. Jehovah watches over and cares for his set-apart people, just as man is commanded to watch over and care for those set-apart living creatures that are so important and so loved by our Creator. You see, that segment of mankind that refuses to come under the submission of the Lord God, those who remain outside the camp of Israel, equates in the animal kingdom to the unclean, wild animals. They won't submit. Wild animals are defined biblically as animals that refuse to come under the submission of man. Okay. Animals that can't be successfully domesticated. So they have to remain outside the camp of Israel just as men who refuse to come under God's submission must remain outside the camp of Israel. Only animals that allow mankind to care for them, those we call domestic animals, are eligible for holiness. Only men who allow the Creator to care for them are suitable for holiness. Is this starting to make sense to you? This concept of patterns and patterns and patterns that connects everything in God's universe. Let's take this one more step further. Jehovah is a real Lord and King over us. He quite literally protects his own. He'll fight for us. He'll allow nothing to take us from his hand. Man is specifically instructed by God to protect those animals that he has put under our care. Those domestic, clean animals. Shepherds protect their flocks with their very lives. And they're supposed to. Thus, the purity of the sanctuary, the temple, the tabernacle, and the holiness of Jehovah are protected by only permitting sanctified men and sanctified animals in his holy presence. And so when we ask why, 
the rules for clean and unclean animals are as they are, the answer is that it's because those rules conform to the clean and unclean rules for mankind. And this is because all that conforms to the pattern of holiness that was laid down by our Lord. Next week we'll explore the relationship between ritual purity and sin.